What no one ever tells you about marriage. This conference was given by David Rodriguez at a St. Vincent Ferrer conference in Northern Kentucky on November 16, 2019. This audio presentation is the second of a two-part conference series. It is a slightly updated and expanded version of the original talk. Audio of the first talk and notes for both parts of this conference are available at the Fatima Center's website, www.fatima.org. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So this talk is entitled, What No One Ever Tells You About Marriage, and it is part two. The first thing one might ask is, why this topic? I think it's a very, very important topic for right now. I'll take a quote that came from Sister Lucia. She was writing, actually, to Cardinal Cafara. And in that letter she said, Father, a time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be over marriage and the family. And those who will work for the good of the family will experience persecution and tribulation. But do not be afraid, because Our Lady has already crushed His head. So we already have it foretold to us. Part of the message of Our Lady of Fatima is that there is going to be a decisive climactic, final-type battle. And it's about marriage. And it's about the family. We're certainly seeing that around us. I don't think we're blind to think this doesn't apply to our times. It is certainly applying to our times. Colonel Kafara, who actually passed away a few years ago, he had been nominated by John Paul II to head up a new institution created by John Paul II called the Pontifical Institute for the Family, for Marriage and the Family in the early 80s. And he basically just wrote to Sister Lucia asking for her prayers. He said he was very surprised because Sister Lucia wrote back to him and he had never expected a reply back. That is where Sister Lucia said those words. And in his own interview where he referred to that and quoted what we just quoted by Sister Lucia, he added, this is the cardinal, the church now adding, Sister Lucia's prophecy is being fulfilled today. This was an interview given in 2017, the year in which he passed. He further explained that Satan is attempting to destroy the two pillars of creation. If you go back and you read his interview, the two pillars of creation are, are man himself, the way God has made us, and the specific relationship that exists between man and woman. Satan is attempting to destroy the two pillars of creation so as to fashion his own anti-creation. And he also added that in this battle, woman is the human being who must be defended the most. 
So there's a definite attack on women in particular in this battle against marriage and in this battle against the family. That should not surprise us, since we know the devil began his great attack on mankind by attacking the first woman, Eve, the mother of all the living. How wondrous of divine providence that it is the woman who will crush his head with her heel no less to show her complete power over him and the utter humiliation of his defeat. Some of you might recognize his name, Cardinal Kafara, because on the 19th of September, he and three other cardinals, if you recall, presented what is now rather famous, they call it the dubia. It's a formal technical term when there is a question you need clarification on, like a doctrinal matter or a liturgical matter, a bishop can write a dubia to the Holy Office, to the Pope, requesting clarification on this or that matter. And you usually want to phrase the question so that your answer is very simple. You just say yes or no. And then if the Pope wants, he could you know, provide a more elaborate explanation. So these dubias have been sent for you know, centuries now. So anyway, the four cardinals got together and sent this dubia to Pope Francis on account of the document Amoris Laetitiae, uh, which is Francis's document on marriage or the joy of spousal love. In that document, especially if you read, I believe it's the eighth chapter, it's really quite pernicious, and it is opening the door and introducing heresies and introducing grave abuses and sacrileges against profanations against the Blessed Sacrament, our Lord. So they wanted to clarify doctrine for the world, and they asked him five very simple questions, which honestly, a well-catechized seven-year-old could answer these questions, uh, as long as they understood the words, but you could rephrase it so that they would understand the words, because they do use some technical words. But, I mean, it's very simple. You just say, no, yes, 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 yes. I mean, that's how simple it is to answer the dubia, and it took me all of five seconds. But it is now more than three years that Pope Francis has refused to address this dubia. That is a big problem. That's marriage being under attack. I'm just going to deviate real quick because I love church history. As many of you may know, we do have at least one pope, Pope Honorius, who passed away in 638, who was posthumously condemned as a heretic by an infallible teaching of an ecumenical council, which was then supported by popes themselves. For example, Pope St. Leo II. So if anyone ever asks that we had a pope who was a heretic, everyone should be able to answer yes, and we know that for certitude, because the Third Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in 681 declared him so. Those decisions were further ratified by subsequent popes, including Pope St. Leo II. It's interesting, though, go back and read that, because... Honorius is not anathematized as a heretic because he held or promoted any particular heresy. Rather, it is because he failed to condemn the heresy of monothelitism and it was his sacred and solemn obligation to do so. We all know about sins of omission. You could almost call this, this was kind of a grave papal sin of omission committed by Honorius in not declaring something a heresy that should have been a heresy and actually led the church into a lot of problems. And by the time this third council comes around, they're trying to resolve it. We've got some holy popes, Pope St. Agatho, Pope St. Leo II. It gets resolved, but not without a lot of suffering. Many who upheld the truth were tortured, some martyred, error was widespread, there were schisms within the church which to this day are not healed, and so there were countless loss of souls. Only God knows how many. And that loss of souls, that's terrible. The ongoing schism is horrific, a great scandal to the faith, and it should make us understand why to the church leaders of the time it was so important 
to go back and say Honorius is going to be branded posthumously as a heretic because he didn't defend the faith as he ought to have done. Something to think about. Cardinal Kafara passed away already. He's gone to his divine judge and the dubia, of course, remains unanswered. It's also interesting that John Paul II placed that institution that Cardinal Kafara headed, the Pontifical Institution for Marriage and Family, under the patronage of Our Lady of Fatima. So having read the contents of the Third Secret, perhaps John Paul II already knew something about these warnings. And if you've been following the news lately, some terrible things have been happening in that particular Pontifical Institute as of late. Uh, we also have it from revelations of Our Lady of Buen Suceso in Quito, Ecuador. This is back in the 1600s. It's good to read all of her prophecies, but I'll just take this one particular snippet where she told Mother Mariana de Jesus Torres, As for the sacrament of matrimony, which symbolizes the union of Christ and His Church, it will be attacked and profaned in the fullest sense of the word. Iniquitous laws will be enacted with the aim of doing away with the sacrament, making it easy for everyone to live in sin and encouraging the procreation of illegitimate children born without the blessing of the church. The Catholic spirit will rapidly decay and the precious light of faith will gradually be extinguished until it reaches the point that there will be an almost total and general corruption of morals. In these unhappy times, there will be unbridled luxury, which will ensnare the rest into sin and conquer innumerable frivolous souls who will be lost. Innocence will almost no longer be found in children, nor modesty in women. In this supreme moment of the need of the church, those who should speak will fall silent. Obviously, those who should speak are the proper shepherds of the church. And as we just saw a minute ago with this dubia that is now going on for over three years and answered, they have fallen silent. Marriage is under attack today. And therefore, a defense of holy matrimony is essential. So that's really the purpose why I thought six months ago that this was a talk that needed to be given, especially to our Catholic youth of today. Many of you might know the Latin word for mother, mater, that's really where we get matrimony. And when you put that little suffix attached to it, it basically means making a woman into a mother. Okay, that is what matrimony means. Those are the root words. Matrimony is that process by which a woman will be turned into a mother. So the woman is going to be very much at the heart of marriage and at the heart of family. That's what we're having to defend. That's why Colonel Kafara made that statement as well regarding the defense that woman in particular needed to be defended. See, an attack on woman is an attack on family and marriage. You can't destroy these institutions or turn them upside down without also destroying the very nature of who woman is as woman. The devil, of course, knows this. Satan is certainly attacking it. He has to attack it because if you just think about the incarnation, the great mystery of incarnation, Christ, if you will, God, becoming man, you could almost say God marrying humanity. That, that kind of language in mystical theology has been used where the incarnation itself is described as a kind of marriage between God and his people. 
That we even heard in the quote earlier about what marriage represents for Christ and his church from our Blessed Mother herself. And of course, the incarnation is what makes the Blessed Virgin Mary a mother. It's a necessary precursor to the woman becoming queen of heaven and earth, of all creation. Obviously, he's been attacking Eve from the very beginning. The woman, matrimony, what is central here, but we're not going to get into the whole feminist movement in this particular talk, but that is also a tremendous attack that, that plays into the role of destroying marriage and an attack on the woman, the modern understanding of what feminism goes by. Once Satan is able to undermine marriage, he's really going to destroy all of society and God's order. All creation will be turned upside down. Where a man doesn't even know if he's a man, might think he's a woman, or a woman might think she's a man. I mean, this is how upside down creation is getting marriages under attack. Society is certainly attacking it with divorce, contraception, abortion, the unnatural vice agenda. Marriage is under attack. And the church is not sufficiently defending it. They have fallen silent. So, I turn to you, the young Catholics, and I say, Many of you will most likely get married. Obviously, some of you are married. You are the ones who will have to defend marriage. That battle is here. It is unavoidable. It is inescapable. Whether you want to be engaged in this battle or not, it's like the battle has been brought to us. We must, we must defend marriage because it's essential to defend God's creation. It's essential to defend God's goodness. It's essential to defend the right order in society. All good things that exist in this world really in many ways hinge on this, and that's not an exaggeration. So that's why this topic was chosen. Just very briefly, if you remember, we were going to cover ten points. So the points that have already been covered is that if you want to live a good Catholic marriage, it's really going to have to be countercultural. And I explained that more in depth in the previous talk. You have to really firmly believe and be completely convinced that divorce, the D word, is not an option. You don't ever let yourself go there. You never say that word to your spouse. It's just not an option. Don't go there. You need to really check your expectations. And that, again, is one that I cannot sufficiently emphasize because I think certainly the people here who are married could testify to this perhaps later or talk to them. I think that every single person who gets married after five years or ten years or fifteen years or twenty years, and it keeps going, you realize that there are a lot of expectations you had that were wrong about marriage that haven't quite played out the way you thought they would or should. It just is. I mean, every one of you right now, if you're thinking about marriage or you're discerning it, you have some concept in your mind of what it's going to be like. You really have to sort of check that expectation because it often out, doesn't play out that way. And that leads to much frustration. And that's where people start thinking about divorce because this thing hasn't met their expectations. It could be in some very simple things, but could also be some very deep and profound things that affect the intimacy of the spousal union. So one has to be really careful with those expectations and not bring them all and be willing to really pray and discern. Are they really matching up with reality? Are they fair, as we spoke about last time? But go back to that one. I think again and again, I find myself constantly having to go back to that finding myself getting frustrated about something in my marriage and saying, okay, but what were my expectations? Are, are these correct expectations to have? Well, how do I have to adjust them? So do that. Follow God's right order. We talked about God's right order last time as well. One thing I'll bring up from that particular point, because it cannot be sufficiently emphasized, you've got to understand what love is. Love is so important. 
We even have a passage in the scripture, right, that says God is love. But what does that mean? If people don't understand what love means, then you don't even understand what it means when you say God is love. Obviously, that is a long discussion. So I'm just going to give you the tip of the iceberg. But don't forget that because it's essential. It's not a feeling, okay? There is a feeling you have, which we have attributed to the name love, but that's a problem of our language. It'd be better if we had more words, okay? When we're talking about love here, the love that a marriage is going to be built on, it is ultimately a choice, a decision of your will. Hopefully you understand that there is a hierarchy in the human being. Our will and our intellect are part of our soul, and they are higher faculties than the lower faculties, like your senses or your feelings, your passions, or even just your basic, what we call animal instincts, that enable you to survive the need to breathe and to eat. Okay, the things that we share in common with the animals. Well, the will and the intellect are higher faculties. There's those things that the animals do not have. Love being so important, love being something that is shared with the divine that comes from God to us, is of those higher faculties. So while the senses might enjoy something pleasurable, that pizza was delicious. And so then people say, I love pizza. Okay, they're talking about something very much on the sensory level. This is not the love we're talking about. In a way, it's a misuse of the word love. The love is an act of the will. It is a choice. It is a decision you make. It resides in your will. And you've got to remember that always about love. And when you talk to someone, you know, and that's a great question. You know, sometimes people talk about in a relationship where they get to that point where someone finally says, I love you. And I remember talking to a group of young people and said, you know, if that's ever posed to you. You sort of have to come back with, yeah, what do you really mean by that? Put the person on the spot who just told you they quote unquote love you. I don't know. Are they saying they love you the way they love pizza? Or are they saying something else? And if indeed something else, then what precisely? Because people use that word love and they say, I love you. And they can mean so many different things. You want to get that cleared up. It helps avoid false expectations. Is it a decision of the will where you desire Will the good for the other, no matter the sacrifice to yourself. And really, we're talking about the ultimate good, which is your salvation, your soul's salvation, that you'll get to heaven. So really, what love is about is when I desire your salvation, and I desire that above even the goods of myself, like my physical comfort or my intellectual pride or my stubbornness or, or anything else like that, I place your salvation above that, and then you act in accordance with that. You know, you design, you act in accordance. It's not just some, oh, yeah, I wish you would have that. You've got to carry it out in your actions. So you sacrifice. That's what love is. And this is not easy. Love is hard. It's difficult. If you understand what it really is, then you can see why it is so challenging, and why you have to persevere. It takes a very strong and committed will. Again, to really love is going to be hard. So that's very important for us to remember what love truly is. And that's what the marriage has to be founded on. And then also we talked about the difference between joy and happiness. And how happiness is very fleeting, but joy is not. Joy is long-lasting. And what joy is rooted and how we're not in this life looking just for what makes me happy but rather what truly brings us joy. And that sacrificial love, exemplified obviously by our Lord on the cross more than anyone else. Right? That's If you ever want to know what is love, you just turn and you look at the crucifix. You look at our Lord there. And that is love incarnate. That's going to bring you real joy. 
definitely our Lord, when he is suffering his agony on the cross, is not happy. He is not happy. But he is joyful. And he's filled with a great joy, which is why he longs for it at the Last Supper. His passion's already begun then. And he's saying, I have longed for this with a longing. That's like his greatest longing is to get on the cross for us. So there is joy there. Okay, so those are the four points that we covered last time. And I mentioned this, not in sufficient depth as we're moving right along. Great books that you should read when you're doing, for example, the spiritual reading or even the meditation. You can take some of these great books with you. One of these is The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Always be reading little bits from it. And in this one passage, book 3, chapter 23, it's our Lord talking to the soul. So think of this as Jesus talking to you. Our Lord saying, Son, I will teach you now the way of peace and true liberty. But because this is a talk about marriage, I really want you to put it in the context of marriage. Okay? For those of you that are married, you can apply it directly to your spouse. For those of you who are discerning, this is what you've got to be aiming for. As Kevin spoke earlier, we've got to have those aims in our life, the mission. Where are we going? Endeavor rather to do the will of another than thy own. So spouses should be doing that. How often are you really endeavoring to do the will of your spouse and not your own? Ever choose rather to have less than more. Very important for a family. I think often families are doing the opposite. They always want more instead of less. That is not going to bring you peace nor joy. Always seek the lowest place to be inferior to everyone. That's a very difficult one. Spouses often like winning arguments against each other. It's a violation of that principle. It's not going to be bringing you the peace and the joy. Always wish and pray that the will of God may be entirely fulfilled in thee. I mean, really, if you follow those four principles, it doesn't matter your state of life, married or not. That is a path to true peace and true liberty. They're easy to say, but I think they take a lifelong to try to implement well. The fifth principle, then, is that we need to reject selfishness. That selfishness is truly the poison that destroys and corrupts marriages. As opposed to, for example, one would think hate is the opposite of love. In this context, it's not really hate we're talking about. It's selfishness. And we mentioned that very often people mask this selfishness with a facade of basically saying, I I just want to be happy. Oftentimes that really just means I just want to be selfish. We just feel a little weird using that word. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to admit that. So we turn the words around, pick words a little bit more benign to ourselves. I'll never forget. It's interesting because I've completely forgotten the movie. I do not know what movie this came from, but the scene has remained in my, was etched in my mind. So in this scene, there is a father, the father and the mother, they're going to get a divorce. And the father's like at a park and he's got his little six-year-old daughter with him. And he's trying to explain to her these things that are going to happen. And he basically tells her, well, it's hard to explain. You couldn't really understand this. I mean, basically, mommy and daddy just fell out of love. And so, like, this is now the course of events. Perhaps you've heard people talk like that. I think many people who approach the D word, violating principle number two, they start talking that way. That's utter nonsense. And that's ridiculousness. You don't, quote, unquote, fall out of love. This is one of the ones, again, that we're using it. We're not using the word correctly. To fall, you know, you're walking and you trip. That's when you fall. It's an accident. It's something that sort of happens to you without you having control over it. Love is a choice. If you no longer love your spouse, you chose not to. 
And usually it's not just one decision, it's a decision that builds upon a decision that builds upon a decision, and you've built up a habitual pattern of choosing, I'm not going to love my spouse, and now you finally come to this realization that it just takes too much work and too much effort, and you no longer have the desire to choose to love your spouse, and the feelings aren't there anymore, and so you just say, well, I fell out of love. Instead of owning that and saying to your daughter, you know what, the reality of it is, I have chosen to be selfish. And I have chosen not to love your mother and to sacrifice myself for you and for her. And because of that, I'm now abandoning you. We mask that with, oh, I fell out of love. Okay, that's what I mean by selfishness is destroying marriage. And it's really hard for people to face that. They don't want to face that, which is why they don't talk that way. But that's the reality of it. And that's the kind of poison that selfishness is in a marriage. So that's really why you have to avoid it. You always have to be struggling against it. Now, selfishness is a condition of fallen man, okay? We got original sin, we got concupiscence, so all of us are going to be dealing with selfishness all our life. That's part of it. That's why we're living on this earth to try to purify ourselves. It's a constant battle. I think you could even get some great saints here, you know, and they would tell you they're fighting with selfishness. So don't think you're going to conquer this. It keeps going. But you've got to fight that battle, okay? And... What you have to realize is that you're fighting it for the good of many others, for their sake. For the sake of the children, to begin with. Because that's what this selfishness really hurts. But it's not just the sake of the children, it's for the sake of, of you. Like, I am fighting against selfishness in my own marriage for your sake. For the sake of my community, of my neighbors, of my church community, of even my entire nation, and certainly of the entire church. When you're fighting against the selfishness and you're trying to build a strong family, it's not just, we have a very individualistic and personalistic mentality. I think maybe it's part of our American culture. Maybe it's part of the Protestant heritage we have, enlightenment individualism. Okay, we can talk about the philosophical origins of this. But anyway, it's here and we have it. And we really got to struggle against it. But so often we don't think of our marriage in these larger social terms how it affects everyone around us, the whole world, and those to come after us. You know, people are talking, and again, they're approaching the D word, and it's sort of like, well, you need to be happy. Mom never really wanted her daughter to get a divorce, but she sees that her daughter's not very happy in the marriage and says, well, yeah, you've got to be happy. I understand why you're doing this. And it's like, it's not just about you and you being happy, which we've already talked about the problems there, but think about your marriage is a defense for all of society for the church, for not just your children, but other children. And so we've got to get this bigger vision of marriage, that my marriage, yes, it is my marriage with my wife, but it is also a marriage at the service of a community at large. How often do I think of my marriage in those terms? Unfortunately, not often enough, but we need to. And that's one of the beautiful things that when you start reading the traditional papal documents and teaching on marriage, the popes really do come at it from that perspective. I mean, they're going to have both because it's well-balanced. But they certainly understand marriage as that you know, very personal and intimate union between one man and one woman. But they also understand marriage as the basic building block for all of society. And how ultimately we really have to defend marriage because that's going to uphold all of society and all of God's right order. Uh, it really was 
so unfortunate when a lot of this stuff that's come up with trying to redefine marriage and Supreme Court laws that are being passed in our country where these justices think they can redefine God's right order in his creation. And some people who were Catholic and were at a traditional Catholic parish, so they have the Latin mass law, but they were basically saying, look, I don't know what the big deal is as long as it doesn't affect me and they don't sort of like bring it into my home or my kids, like I'm going to be okay. And this was like seven years ago, whatever it was. But I, I told them, if you really think that, you're so naive. I've got a Golden Gate Bridge I can sell you too. I mean, if this happens, it, it doesn't happen in a bubble. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It will affect you whether or not you realize it. It will. And every attack on any marriage is an attack on all of society. Okay? You cannot start redefining marriage or what two people are doing, quote-unquote, in the privacy of their own home behind locked doors is still affecting the rest of us. It does. Because the family is that basic unit and building block. And so often when we defend marriage, we're not coming at it from the perspective of the good that marriage brings to society. I think it goes back to that selfishness. I really think that's one of the reasons why. Because in order to start thinking about it that way, you really have to start rooting out the selfishness. And most of us are just unwilling or unaware of the need to be rooting out this selfishness. So marriage does exist for the common good of the entire society. And it's certainly there for the raising of children. And see, children really help you overcome your selfishness. I will tell you that out of all the things I've been through in my life, nothing is helping me overcome my selfishness as much as my children. I mean, they really do. And as I was saying, everybody has to struggle with selfishness, and everybody's going to have to be struggling with that all their life. It's like one of the antidotes that God in his great wisdom and goodness and mercy has given us is he said, okay, I'm going to give you this marital relationship and I'm going to give you these children because they're sort of like the medicinal balm that you need to overcome those particular selfishness, those wounds of sin, tendencies towards sin that you've got. So raise your children well, lose the selfishness, and you're going to be becoming the saint that you need to become. Very often... Parents might wonder, you know, why did God give me this child with this personality or with this attitude or with this handicap or with this or whatever it is that at that particular moment is particularly trying their patience and aggravating them? Uh, it's because God knows what you need to overcome your selfishness, to overcome that pride and the ego-centeredness. And believe me, these are the children God wants you to have. That's why he's given them to you, because he loves you. And the children are there to help you get to heaven as parents, and obviously you as parents are there to help them get to heaven. And in God's great wisdom, he can work it out, so it works both ways. But uh, that's a key. And so it's so sad when people get married, then don't want to have children, or start taking active, concrete steps so as not to have children. They're just giving into that selfishness, and they're just making it worse. It's going to destroy them ultimately, I mean, certainly with eternal perdition if they don't get beyond that, but... Even in their own life, it's what's going to be leading to this, I'm not happy and I don't have joy and I don't have peace. So children are a really great means that God gives us so that we will be losing that selfishness. Very important. So work against selfishness. Know that it's the poison that destroys marriage. Point number six now dovetails in very nicely. Not enough people are talking about this today. And it's very, very important you have to know and embrace the primary end of marriage. Okay, what do I mean here by primary end? Okay, we don't talk this way enough, but it sometimes goes by scholasticism, but honestly, it's just right reason, good reason. Everything has a purpose in life. 
There's reasons why certain things are existing and used. And you've got to know the right reason. I can give you many simple examples. Right? Gasoline is there, for example, with your car. You put it in the tank and it makes the car run. You don't even need to know all the way that the carburetor and the combustion and the spark plugs are going. You just know you put the gasoline and it runs. That's the, that's the end of the gasoline. But you've got to put it in the tank. It doesn't do you any good if you go and you spill it on the back seat. Right? In fact, you're going to sort of ruin your car and it's not going to smell great and you cause a big problem. So you've got to know where it goes. And then what would happen if you came and you got milk and stuck milk in the gasoline tank instead? Well, now you're going to be ruining your car. I don't know how much money you spend on it, but there goes your car. Okay? So you've got to know the end of things. Or what is this? And everybody says, well, that's a pen. I say, no, you are wrong. This is a parachute. Its end is I can get on a plane and I hold it and I jump out of the plane and then it'll mushroom up into a big thing and I'll land safely on the earth. And then you're like, okay, David, go try it. Get on the plane and jump out holding that little thing. And we all know what's going to happen to me if I am so foolish as to mistake the end of this, which is a writing utensil, for something like a parachute, which saves your life when you jump out of a plane. So with a lot of these basic things, we know their ends, and we use them correctly. Cars and gas and pens and parachutes. But what about marriage? And for that matter, what about yourself? You are infinitely more important than a pen or a parachute or gas or a car. And so too is marriage. What is your end? That's where the discussion always has to start, and that is very Catholic. It's also very human. It's just right reason. So you always have to be asking, what is the end of marriage? And marriage has a primary purpose, a primary end, a reason for which it exists, a reason for which God created it. And it's not that hard to figure out. Everybody knows it, even when you're a little kid. You know, I've got a lot of little kids, and they already know you get married because you have children. That's what marriage's end is. Its primary end is the procreation of children and the formation of children. That's where children are meant to be created and that's where children are meant to be formed. If you don't know this about marriage, you have no business talking about marriage, let alone getting married. You have to understand this is the purpose of marriage. And we have to proclaim this loudly and clearly and it's built into nature. Okay? It's very obvious. I'm not going to go into the old natural law part of it, although... That's very important, and I think all Catholics should learn that, but a few years back, Dr. McCall gave a talk at one of our Fatima Center conferences and explained just the natural law and how you don't even have to be Catholic. Natural law is something everyone can know to understand that the primary end of marriage is procreation. And he goes through steps and gives you some great logical steps. So you can find that talk on YouTube. I do encourage you to watch it, because he does a beautiful systematic way of lining it up. And it would be imperative, I think it's incumbent upon us, we are compelled to go learn these things so that we can begin to discuss with the society around us that doesn't understand this how it's pretty basic that the primary end of marriage is for the procreation and the formation of children. Which, by the way, see, once you know that, once you know the primary end of marriage is children, then it's a no-brainer that marriage is one man and one woman. And you can't be mixing it around. You can't be redefining marriage to do something else because then it goes against the primary end. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way. It's like the guy who wants to grab the pen and proclaim loudly it's a parachute and then go jump off the plane. We all know what's going to happen to him. So too for those who are trying to say that marriage has got some other end and they're not acknowledging its primary end, society is collectively jumping out of the plane, holding marriage, saying it's something different, and they're going to splatter down. And that, that's kind of like where our society's headed, right? And you see it. You see it all around. Now, marriage is a natural reality and a supernatural reality. 
And by supernatural reality, we mean here something of the life of sanctifying grace that God gives us. Obviously, even if you don't have sanctifying grace, you're not Catholic, you haven't been baptized, but you can still get married. It's still a natural good and a natural reality. And we would say that in that sense, the natural end of marriage is precisely to propagate the human race. But for those baptized, for Catholics, marriage has been raised to a level of a sacrament. Last time we talked about contract and sacrament, how they're inseparable. So we're kind of going back to that again. And when we talk about how it's raised to the level of a sacrament, well, it also has to have a supernatural end. And the supernatural end is not going to be independent or divorced from its natural end, that they're very well tied together, but really the supernatural end of marriage is to populate heaven. This is why God is giving us marriage and the sacraments, so that we can not just procreate the children, but form them in holiness. Form them so that they get to heaven. So, when you're thinking about discerning marriage, this is really one of the questions you have to be asking yourself. Do I want to be sort of like engaged in the business? Is my life's goal, my mission, that vision I have for where I'm headed in my life, how I'm going to get to sanctity, how I seek union with God is part of it, forming souls and helping them get to heaven through, if I'm a guy with my wife, if I'm a girl with my husband. I mean, anyone who's thinking about marriage, that should be the forefront thing in their mind as you discern marriage. And then as you go through your entire marriage, that's got to remain the main goal, the main mission to which you're always focused. And then you begin to order your life around that. So when you come to very basic questions, I mean, it could be stuff like, where do I live? What job do I take? What car do I buy? Do we buy this particular skirt or those shoes or this food? Or I mean, all kinds of just real daily concrete questions. They can always be in the context of that big umbrella of what's really helping us populate heaven. I mean, if you can answer with certitude, this job is going to help me more get to heaven than this other job, well, then it's a no-brainer which job God is wanting you to take. You take the one that's getting you closer to heaven. Or this car is going to help you and the other car might not. Maybe one car is going to feed your vanity. Maybe one car is going to make you go into debt and not fulfill other responsibilities and cause you too much stress and anxiety, on and on and on. You get the drift. Okay, So we've got to have that goal for marriage. And then... The other thing that people don't seem to say, children are a great blessing. It's so sad to see a world where this is not acknowledged or recognized. And children are almost seen as like a negative thing. As burdensome, a drudgery that's cramping my style. In the sacred scriptures, like God's infallible word, many children are a great blessing. And being in debt is a curse. Look how inverted and insane our world is today because children are considered a burden. Too many of them are considered a curse, which we then willingly slaughter our blessings. And we apply for our debts. We apply for our curses. And we think we're blessed by it. Children are a blessing and debt is a curse. We've got it like completely inverted. So that should show you how countercultural your marriage is really going to have to be. And you've got to be ready for the attacks from the world. Then, back to number one, the counterculture points. Because if you do have a lot of kids, people will inevitably give you the snarky comments. They don't even know who you are, but they feel they've got to stick their nose in your business, whether you're at a store or a park, or give you a look or make some rude comment. It often stems from their own insecurities and their own sadness. That really is what it is. So you do well to come up with some responses. Some can be charitable, but some can also make them think. You know, my wife likes to say when she's told something, she says, yeah, but it's because, you know, no one ever sits on their deathbed thinking, boy, I wish I'd watched a few more TV shows. You think about your children. So 
those are the things that ultimately really matter. And someone tells you, well, your hands are full. You're like, yeah, but it's better than empty. A thing about children, too, is they really serve as glue for a marriage. They unite couples in an effort. From personal testimony, I know this one couple, and they were telling me that good Catholics, strong Catholics, I mean, they probably knew a lot of this stuff up here. But still, expectations, they get into that first year of marriage, it's a rough, rocky time. You've got to get ready for that, too. And they sort of said, you know, we don't think we may have survived the first year of marriage. But fortunately, we got a honeymoon baby. That child was really what kept us together. If it had not been for that pregnancy and then the child that was born, don't know if it would have worked. You know, now they've got whatever, they've got years of marriage, they've got more kids. But look at that testimony. I mean, it's so sad when you have these people that are talking about how they're saying things like, well, we're going to get married and for the first five years we're not going to have kids. We're not ready for kids yet. Don't ever think that way. They may have just doomed their own marriage to divorce or at least to a great deal of unhappiness stemming from unchecked selfishness because they consciously decided to not allow God to give them a great blessing a glue which could have kept their marriage united and strong. That one couple I told you about says that that's very likely what would have happened to them. So how many does that happen to? I simply cannot adequately convey how destructive this is to marriage, to the individual, to society, when people have the attitude of, we want to get married but not have kids for the first two years or the first year, whatever time frame you put there. I could talk about the ramifications of this for a long time, but I will leave it to you to think about. Suffice it to say, nothing good will come from violating God's law, from refusing the blessings He wishes to give, and from not being open to the final end of marriage. Remember, all things have an end, a purpose for which they exist, and they must be used in proper accordance to that end. To do so otherwise is disastrous. Now, I will tell you flat out, if you are not ready to have children, you are not ready for marriage. People don't seem to get this in our culture. But again, go back to the primary purpose. If the primary end of marriage is in fact the procreation and the formation of children, and you're saying, I'm not ready for this procreation and formation of children, well, then you're not ready for marriage. It's a very simple step. You just got to know this. And you have to believe it. And the world is constantly trying to reject that. So, children are a great blessing. They do unite the couple and never buy into the world's lies, the false maxims of the world, that you know, children are a curse or it's difficult or you just don't want to have too many or you need to wait or all these things. You know, allow God to be God and let Him be in charge of the timetable in your marriage and with regard to your children. I would also add that children we do have to speak as well about their rights. Not enough people are talking about the rights of a child in the correct way, mind you. There is certainly blather about this, but it's often in a manner that usurps the rights of parents. And that's a telltale sign that it's wrong. True rights of parents and of children will always harmonize, work together. If the rights are being opposed, then some of those rights are not being presented correctly. And here I just want to mention one right of children, but it is basic and foundational to their other rights. And I forget exactly which papal, this was, I'm pretty sure, one of the magisterial documents I was reading this, uh, but the Pope was talking about how every child really has the right to be born to a father and a mother who love each other and who strive to have a healthy, 
stable family and home. And that's the right of every child. For us to intentionally or, you know, taking actions that we know can lead to children, but not bringing them into the situation is a grave injustice against that child also. Children deserve to have a father and a mother who love each other, who are building up this home. Those are the rights of children. We don't talk enough about those in our culture. Again, something people don't talk to us about. I'll go over this just briefly also. I could spend much more time, but I just don't have it. And that's that there are serious problems with something that in Catholic circles today is being called natural family planning. Okay? Be wary of this. Be very careful with it. In many dioceses, you're actually compelled in order to get married by the priest in the parish to take certain, they call them pre-cana classes, premarital classes, whatever, and they often will include courses on natural family planning. That's not good. To begin with, subjects are being discussed openly, far too openly, subjects that are not meant for mixed company, especially those who are not yet married. Certain matters like these need much discretion. And I'll tell you, on that count alone, these classes are not being taught in an authentically Catholic and virtuous manner. And this isn't just something that you should dismiss and discount. But nevertheless, the main reason I strongly advise you to stay away from so-called NFP is because natural family planning is assuming a lot of the positions I've been saying are not good. They're assuming the position that you don't really want to have that many children and you don't really want to have them on God's timetable. That basically you want to be more in charge of when you have the children or how many you have, how you might space them and how all this fits in with what you perceive to be the needs of your life, your desires, your wants. Children are the primary purpose of marriage. And yet, NFP has the attitude of, eh, we'll figure out where they best fit in to our lifestyle, to how I want to live. Let's be honest and frank, keeping it real. What this really means is that you really don't believe the infallible teaching that children are the primary purpose of marriage. You are not in full conformity with natural law. And you don't fully trust that children are the greatest blessing which God gives your marriage. And so then they start teaching you various methods, natural ones, so they're not artificial. It's not artificial birth control, which is gravely wrong, which is always objectively sinful, morally sinful. But if the same mentality that motivates someone who is using artificial contraception, if that same mentality is motivating them to use the natural methods of preventing conception and preventing God to work, that's also sinful. Because you're not allowing God to be God. And so NFP can also easily slip into being mortally sinful. In many circumstances, it is gravely wrong. And from what I've seen and heard, I would say that the majority of time that NFP is being employed... It is being done in a manner that is seriously, gravely wrong. Okay, that's the real fundamental problem. And again, most people who are talking about naturally family planning are sort of coming from this attitude that you don't want to have children, that too many children are too big of a burden, instead of the children of the blessing. So that's, I would say, the main reason why you have to be very careful with it. What you want to have is the spirit that God has. God is extremely generous. One of my favorite sayings is that God will not be outdone in generosity. He won't. If you're generous with God, like with your time and your sacrifices, God is always more generous with you. Because he's God, he's almighty. 
just he will not let anyone outdo him with generosity. So be generous with God. You've got to tell couples, young people, you have to say, be generous with God and the giving of life. If God wants to give you a child, let him. Don't put anything in his way. Let him do it. Be generous and have a spirit of generosity and a spirit of selflessness, of love, sacrificing for the good of the other, for the population of heaven with these souls. What we're talking about is the primary end of marriage, right? Again, the natural family planning mode, you know, 99% of the time, has got this attitude of, no, I don't want to let God be in charge. I can't be too generous. I have to be a little bit more selfish. And that will permeate the rest of your life and the rest of your relationships including that with your spouse and with your children. So be careful with it. A good document to also read is Pope Pius XII's Address to Midwives in 1951, because in there he goes into the very restricted and the very narrow conditions under which married spouses could use natural methods at this particular point in time to not conceive, but they're very limited and they're very restricted. And it has nothing to do with I need vacation money or I need two cars or I need to put my kids through college. None of those are the legitimate reasons. Um, the legitimate reasons are, you know, like the, the real risks to the health of one, you know, war going on, uh, various things like that. So read that because that gives you the details. Pius XII is spelling them out. That's good church teaching. And because individual situations can be quite varied and specific details, circumstances, etc. can affect the moral listeners of our actions, I would strongly argue that before any married couple decides to use NFP, they really need to consult a good, orthodox, holy priest who knows traditional teaching. It is far too easy for man to justify a course of action that he wants to take. And so it's important to have an objective, honest view, one that brings wisdom and prudence to the situation. That's why I'm saying go to the priest. And then, for that couple that goes to the priest, their humble submission is a clear sign that they really are seeking the will of God, the good of the family and their marriage, the salvation of their soul. But as a general rule, don't try to go with uh, you know, the boundaries and the limits and the conditions and the restrictions and all that. Just instead, have a spirit of generosity with God. There is an interesting quote by St. John Marie Vianney, which is, again, people don't like talking about it. It's not my words. Okay? This is St. John Marie Vianney, query of ours. He says in one of his sermons, many women go to hell for not having the number of children they should have had. He could read into people's souls. You know, I certainly don't know how many number of children anybody's supposed to have. God knows. But that's a quote from St. John Marie Vianney. So if you are always generous... Generous with your spouse, generous with God. If you don't put in any complications, then you know, well, that's not going to be me. I mean, if I only have one child, but I've always been open and I've always been generous, both with my spouse, with God, with what I need to do in terms of marital intimacy and the procreation of children, then you know this is what God needed me to have. But once you start not being generous, once you start taking that into your own hands, I mean, I don't see how you wouldn't avoid some doubt. Have I done something now that is causing problems? And you don't want to put yourself in that situation. I would also encourage you, exhort you to stay far away from something that is called theology of the body. It's also very popular today. It's difficult to go into it all right now as to why, but I will just mention a few things. The first thing, very simply, is it's, it's just not rooted in our tradition. There are a few things in it that are rooted in our tradition, but you get that from the tradition. You don't need to go to theology of the body. And where it's not rooted in our tradition, it's innovative. And the wrong time to be innovating in theology is when everything is going crazy and chaotic. 
which is what the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s have been. Okay, we have not had stability. So this is not the time to be coming up with innovative things because we don't even have the basic fundamentals rooted. And when you come up with innovative things in a milieu like that, it can lead to a lot of problems, some of them perhaps even unforeseen. So difficult terms here. If you're familiar with them, great. If not, I don't know what other words to use, but there are certain philosophical movements called existentialism and phenomenology and personalism. These modern philosophical systems are what theology of the body is rooted in. I guess a real simple layman's way to try to describe this is they're rooting reality and our understanding of truth and reality. That's what philosophy is really dealing with. Not in God and not in natural law and not in the objective order of things, but in your personal experience of it, in the personal subjective and how it appears to you, the phenomena of it, how you interpret it, how you understand it, how you feel about it. So all of reality, instead of sort of saying it has an objective basis, all these things, the phenomenology and the existentialism, basically all try to turn philosophy around, and this starts with René Descartes with his cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, but basically tries to turn it around and says reality is based on how you perceive it. Okay, I gave a talk on this called The Heresy of Emotionalism, so you can listen to that and get a little bit more of this, but that's basically what these new philosophical methods were. And based on that alone, I think you can see why theology of the body has become so popular. Because it surrenders to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. It accepts many of the positions of the spirit of the world. And what Karl Wojtyla was trying to do with his theology of the body is he was trying to merge Catholic morality with these new philosophical systems. Alert, alert. You cannot mix the lies of the devil with the truth of God. It doesn't work. Okay, but that's the brew, the concoction out of which theology of the body came from. Okay, these false philosophical understandings, and they're trying to paint a Catholic, uh, bring a Catholic morality into it, and so sometimes the Catholic morality is sort of like popping out more correctly, and those things sort of seem good and right, and they're sort of faithful to tradition and faithful to church teaching, but at other points it's not. And it's very difficult and confusing to sort of read through the morass of that and figure out where it's right and where it's not right, and that's one of the reasons why I tell people, look, not good, got to stay away from it, because it's difficult, and the devil can really trick you with this stuff. It inverts the ends of marriage, or at least equates them. Okay, and this is seen throughout the church today, starting really with certainly Gaudium et Spes, which is one of the four major documents of the Second Vatican Council. Again, the end of marriage, what's the primary end of marriage? Everybody says it? Procreation and formation of children. Marriage does have a secondary end, but it's secondary, and you can never invert those two. Primary is primary, it always has to go first, secondary is second. Okay, the secondary end is the mutual good of the spouses that spouses will help each other. That is a reality, and that's a truth, and that's a good of marriage. But it's always a secondary end, okay? So this is the primary and the secondary. If you invert those two, or if you try to put them on the same level playing field, you're going to have big problems, okay? But that's exactly what theology of the body is doing. And Gallium et Spes is doing that as well. And much of what's going on in our church today is doing that. And there's a whole host of problems that you may not even be able to perceive at first that are going to come up with that. And it could be as subtle as a lot of times what they say is, Instead of saying the primary end of marriage is the procreation and the secondary end is the mutual good of the spouses, it just says the ends of marriage are the good of the spouses and the procreation of children. And if you're a Catholic, you read that and you think to yourself, well, there's nothing wrong there. There's no heresy. There's no error. It is true that the ends of marriage are the good of spouses and the procreation of children. But there is an error there, and it is heretical already because we know a greater truth. And the greater truth is you've got to put it in the right order that there is a primary and a secondary end. This is the way the modernist works. 
and the way the modernist slides in a lot of his errors. It's not so much that somebody can come and tell me, what's the error there? Point it out to me. Sometimes the error is in what is not said or in how it is said, as in saying the two equal, just putting an and between them, not distinguishing between the two and putting them as if in a level playing field, and then, oh yeah, conveniently, always mentioning the mutual good of the spouses first and the procreation second. So that in a person's subconscious, you've actually already started to invert them. Not because you've inverted them, just because you placed them in a different order. It's subtle. It's subtle. But that's what's in theology of the body. That's a problem. You get a lot of problems coming from that. For example, keep in mind everything that we have said about selfishness and people seeking happiness, which is fleeting and often based on personal desire and pleasure. Now, if you think the primary purpose of marriage is the good of the spouses, then you can more easily deceive yourself into opening the door for allowing more selfishness, more pursuit of personal pleasure and happiness. After all, that's what one is so easily perceiving as the good. Because this is what fallen man, riddled with concupiscence, naturally leans towards. You might even do some things for the selfishness, pleasure, and happiness of your spouse. Mutual good of the spouses. And yet, when it comes to the good of the children, as I've already said, nothing more effectively helps combat spouses' selfishness than working towards the common goal of raising children for heaven. See, it's far easier to deceive yourself, to delude yourself when you think that the primary focus of marriage should be the mutual good of the spouses than it is when you realize the primary goal is the formation of my children, to build them up in virtue and get them to heaven. Hopefully you can see the difference. And I'll tell you, when you are really seeking and working for that holy formation of your children, then the mutual good of the spouses naturally flows out of that. And this is how primary and secondary ends are meant to work. Namely, when you achieve the primary end, well, the secondary end is there too. Quite naturally. But it doesn't necessarily work the other way around. See, someone can interpret the mutual good of the spouses along these kinds of lines. They would say, well, let's not have children right now. Let's wait two years. Basically, let's give in to selfishness and enjoy ourselves. Let's have a good life. You know, this is someone I I just want to have fun with. This is my soulmate. Someone I really connect with and enjoy being with. Uh, We can have lavish vacations, we'll eat at expensive restaurants, uh, we'll take out time to just read the books I want to read and enjoy, to go to parties or seek entertainment, you know, movies, sports venues, we can drink, we can hang out with our friends, go shopping, be at a bar, whatever. I can go on and on, but I hope you realize how mutual good of the spouses can be very misinterpreted, and it is being misinterpreted by many today. See, we've got to keep thinking about things in the supernatural perspective. And it's because we lack that supernatural perspective in our culture that things like theology of the body are being accepted so easily within our hedonistic, me-first culture. But it gets worse, as all errors do. See, again, if you start thinking that the mutual good of spouses is the primary end of marriage, well, then maybe we can redefine marriage. Maybe it doesn't just have to be between one man and one woman. Because now, procreation has taken a secondary role. But if you maintain that procreation is the primary end, then you can never even start dabbling in this other stuff. Okay, so that's just one sort of implication. There are many more. I I can't go into them all. 
So I hope you can trust me on this, that there are problems with it. Again, it has an insufficient appreciation for original sin and for man's fallen nature, his concupiscence. We are not living in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. But sometimes you read the theology of the body stuff and it sounds like that's where they think we are. Okay, No, concupiscence is a reality. Uh, you've really got to understand original sin. But that's also a problem of modernism. They don't want to accept original sin and concupiscence. By the way, I won't go into this too, and I hope I don't shock and scandalize anyone. I know someone watching this on YouTube is going to be scandalized by this. But that's the problem with Humanae Vitae. Humanae Vitae is not the world's greatest document, and it's not the bastion of Catholic tradition that people sometimes think it is. It does a good job in saying that artificial birth control is wrong, but it's not rooting it in the right reasons. It's not giving you the primary and the secondary reason correctly. It's already leaning on this personalist and existentialist and phenomenological approach that was part of Carl Wojtyla's brainchild in Theology of the Body, and therefore the argument is weaker. The argument against contraception is actually weaker in Humanae Vitae than a Catholic should have given. A Catholic should have been able to give a better and a stronger defense. So when you're fighting an attack, as we talked about, the diabolical attack against marriage, and they're trying to destroy the whole order of society, you don't pull out your weak little arguments. You've got to pull out the strongest and most convincing position to defend the truth that God has given us in creation. Okay, so read Casticonubi instead by Pius XI. It was written earlier, like in 1930, I think, 1931, right around there, uh, as well as the document Canum Divine by Leo XIII in the 1800s when divorce was becoming popularized because those are much stronger in explaining the primary ends of marriage, the secondary ends of marriage, the good for society that marriage has. Those are the Catholic documents we want to be reading and we want to be supporting. We want to imbue ourselves with the teaching there and promote that. Don't worry so much about theology of the body and humanae vitae. Get the good stuff. Get the real stuff. We've got to pull out the big guns to fight the devil in this diabolical attack. Okay? The last thing I would say about theology of the body and the problem is in Catholic language, if you read the older texts, you will often come upon the term marital debt. I'm not sure if you young people have even heard of this term or its corresponding teaching. I can tell you that I myself, going up in the post-Vatican II environment with the new mass and the new orientations and theology of the body, all this stuff, even though I went to seminary for several years and earned a master's degree in theology, I never really heard this term, marital debt. And I was certainly not taught what it meant. I would expect that most of the people my age have had a similar experience. Now, this isn't the time or the place to go into this teaching. If you don't know, it certainly has to do with marital intimacy. And I would say that Catholics who are discerning marriage and have reached a proper age of maturity should be familiar with the basic points in this church teaching. Theology of the body does not form a person with the proper and healthy understanding of what that term means and why the church in her wisdom has used the term marital debt. But after you've been married 10, 15, 20 years, you begin to realize that the church has a lot of wisdom in calling it the marital debt. And theology of the body sort of shies away from that. Oh, people don't want to talk about it that way anymore. There's a realism there. There's a recognition, again, of original sin and concupiscence, and it's important, and it's going to provide for a healthier, happier marriage between the two spouses if they have that traditional understanding of their marital intimacy. And words are important because they convey a lot of meaning. So that's my synopsis of theology of the body. But again, just remember, it's not just what is being said, like pointing to the air, it's what is not being said or how it's being said. One example that hopefully you all would realize very quickly, for example, is am I in heresy if I tell you, if I say the Mass is a meal? Well, that's not heretical. It is true. 
Yes, the Mass has this meal element, and our Lord did institute it at the Last Supper. We call it the Last Supper. That's not wrong. That's true. If I tell you that the Mass is a celebration, it's not wrong. I mean, we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord, and there's cause for great rejoicing to be a Christian. We don't want a lot of gloomy, sour, dour-faced people at Mass. You have to have the joy of Christ in you when you have the indwelling of the Holy Ghost in you. You are going to be filled with joy. There is that celebratory aspect to the Mass. Why do I bring those two terms up? Because hopefully you all know that nowadays that's all people seem to be talking about with the Mass. Mass is a meal, Mass is a celebration. That's all they'll ever say. Well, now you've drifted into heresy and grave error, and it leads to a whole host of problems if you have now limited your concept and the understanding of the Mass to a celebratory meal. Basically, now we're Protestants. That's what's happening in our church today. So, again, primary, it's the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of Christ. Let's start the discussion there. What is the Mass? The Mass is the one sacrifice of Christ which gives perfect adoration and glory to God. And then it's also for our good and brings down all the graces for us. And yes, it is also a meal and a celebration, but let's keep our focus on the right thing, the sacrificial aspect that Christ is ultimately giving honor to God. It's not even about you and I. It's not about us. It's not about you and me. It's, it's about Christ giving perfect glory to God, His Father, to the Blessed Trinity. That's really what the Mass is about. But if you just talk about celebratory and meal, in and of itself, that may not be heretical, but if that's all you focus on, you'll drift into heresy very quickly, especially when you forget the other part. And you will note that traditional Catholic teaching, like that which was expressed at the Council of Trent, very clearly teaches that the Mass is a sacrifice, and that that is primary. But following Vatican II, with its terrible ecumenical orientation, this dogmatic teaching was avoided. And the whole new Mass was created in such a way that de-emphasizes it. Just read the Ottaviani Intervention, which was written by cardinals, bishops, and theologians. They gave it to Paul VI before he promulgated the new Mass. And they told him very clearly, this is a huge problem with the new Mass it's going to lead to a loss of faith. Not referring to it as a sacrifice, just as a meal or a celebration. It portends great evils for the church. It's a similar issue analogously with theology of the body, with Gaudium et Spes and Humanae Vitae, because they are inverting or at least equating the secondary end of marriage to the primary end. So that's what they're doing with a lot of this modernist jargon. And that's what you're going to see in things like the theology of the body, the natural family planning. But that's why it's also not so easy to just sort of pinpoint and say, ah, look, look, right here on this page, so-and-so, there's the heresy, there's the problem. It's a lot more subtle than that. Okay, that's how the devil's working these days in tricking many people. You have to accept that marriage is your cross. This one we did talk about last time a little bit more, so I'm not going to go into it as much. We've already mentioned that if you're married, this is your privileged means of sanctification. You have to live a daily death to yourself. Now, that's how you get rid of your selfishness. That's how you imitate Christ's life-giving sacrifice on the cross. Your spouse is your cross. People don't like talking that way. But that's the reality of it. Okay? But also, the cross is your ladder to heaven. That's a good thing. We want ladders to heaven. And your marriage is going to be your calvary. And you're meant to go up that calvary together. Okay? You know, Simon of Cyrene, helping our Lord, carry the cross up. In Simon of Cyrene, we are meant to see ourselves. But we can also see both spouses together, the two that have become one flesh, carrying the cross with Christ. There are the two spouses carrying their marriage, their kids, up Calvary. That's the marriage. You're going to live that. 
And the thing is that the cross and Calvary and the crucifixion are so central to the very reality of human existence, to the very reality of how God has created this world and the order in this world that no one can escape the cross. That's the other thing we've got to like just drill into our heads. You will not escape the cross. You can't. So do you either embrace it like our Lord did and sort of hug it and say, this is my cross, I choose to love it, which is what we should be doing, or do you try to run away from it, try to avoid it? If you try to run away from it and avoid it in this life because you always want to be happy and you want to be selfish and you only want to be in love when you feel like you're in love, well, that's the path to hell. And then in hell, you're going to spend an eternity basically living that cross in a much more excruciating manner than, than any other way. But see, those in hell are not escaping the cross either. They may have avoided it their entire time on earth. Now they found it. Purgatory, I mean, you're living the cross there because you didn't do enough of living of the cross while you were alive. God gave you all the graces you needed and all the opportunities, but you didn't take them. So now you're in purgatory, still on that cross. Better to do it now here on earth, better to embrace our cross, better to love our cross. It is the only path to heaven. Our Lord tells us, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. So our spouses, our children, they are going to be our cross. But the burden can be light and the yoke can be sweet. That's God's promise. When we're doing it with our Lord. Okay? But what this also tells you is you've really got to be prepared for suffering in marriage. Okay, be prepared for suffering. And so you pray every day to love your cross. You wake up in the morning and you, you make a prayer. You say, dear Lord, help me to love my cross. Help me to love my spouse today. Help me to love my children. Let me realize that this is the path you are choosing for my sanctification. Choose it daily to love your spouse because, again, it's a choice you make. It's not a feeling. You may not feel like loving your spouse on a given day. I can guarantee you if you're married, there's going to be days you don't feel like loving your spouse. Who cares what you feel like? Make the choice and say, I choose to love them. I choose to do the good for them. It's like forgiveness. Forgiveness is the same way. When you go to confession, you're not saying, I feel like I want to forgive the person. And I feel like I'm all right with them. You may not feel like forgiving them. And you may not feel all right. But you are going to choose to forgive them. Big difference. Forgiveness also resides in the will. You can choose to forgive them, go to confession, and get that sin absolved, even though you don't feel like it. And there's still those feelings of anger and betrayal and sadness and whatever else negative stuff came up because of these sins that had to be confessed. So, to love. So, choose it. Choose it every day. I would also say that be prepared to suffer in marriage. Okay, you're going to suffer in marriage. I was so impressed by this young couple. I was at their marriage. We're at the reception, and the young lady starts talking. She gets on the microphone, and she basically says, I have found my partner to go up Calvary. We're going up Calvary together. She was saying that on her marriage, on the day of their wedding. An hour ago, the Mass had just finished, and she already had that recognition. So realize that when you're coming to marriage, there is going to be suffering. You've got to accept it. You've got to embrace it. You're going to go through your lowest of lows in your marriage. Also the highs. But this person, your spouse, is going to see you at your worst. And when they still love you, I mean, then you start getting a better sense of what love is. When, when they stand by each other, when they persevere, even when you're at your lowest low, even when you're in your worst position, that's the marital love. So we hit these moments of crisis in our life, in our marriages, in our families, a crisis. And crisis is a great word in the Greek. It comes from the origin of you're sort of standing at a precipice. You can go this way and fall down the cliff, or you can go the other way. The crisis is like a moment of decision. And there can be great blessings on the one side, or great destruction on the other side. That's really how I look at a crisis. And we do come to these crisis moments. Suffering creates crisis moments for us. And the human being does not grow more 
and flourish and grow in more beautiful ways than when he goes through suffering. That's the reality of who we are. Your greatest moments of growth will come through suffering. God knows that. That's why he sends it to us a lot of times too. But so too in the marriage. So the marriage reaches its points of great suffering, a great crisis. And that's when the people start thinking, oh man, I've got to get out. I want to run away. I'm not happy. I've fallen out of love. Yeah, yeah, all those other excuses, the selfish ones. But in that moment of crisis, if you persevere through it, your marriage will be so much stronger and so much better and the love will be purified and it will be a stronger love. Again, more closely now approaching our Lord's love for us on the cross. And every time you go through those crises and the great sufferings and the great lows, there is an opportunity to either, you know, take steps back and hurt the relationship and destroy things that you've built or to suffer together and to get through it and to persevere together and to move forward. And nothing draws people into a tighter and stronger unity than suffering together. Joys and celebrations are great. But when you get through difficult times of suffering with others, very strong bonds that are filled with trust are created. And these are bonds that others who did not go through the suffering simply or rarely can they comprehend. So suffering can also do a lot to strengthen a marriage. That is what marriage is about, and that's why we need it. And that's why God gives it to us. So you've got to know those things about marriage. There is suffering. It is difficult. It's a cross. There's this beautiful custom I've read about, a Croatian custom, that when they get married, they hold a particular wedding crucifix, and it plays a prominent role in the wedding ceremony with the priest blessing it. Later on, the couple enthrones that crucifix in their home. When they have some of these crises moments, they kneel down and they pray before that crucifix. In this one little Croatian town with a population of about 26,000 people, Siroki Birej, I don't even know how to pronounce Croatian very well, so I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but they have a zero divorce rate. That's unheard of in today's world. I'm sure a lot of it goes back to the fact that they have the Catholic faith and they have this wedding crucifix that the spouses are praying before. They're understanding the deeper realities of marriage, and so they're not fleeing from them. That's certainly something that we should all emulate and strive for. Okay, so number eight now, we're going to move very quickly. These are things I think you've heard, but just I need to touch on a few things. When you have a marriage, you have to place God first, okay? Because only if you love God first can you love and treat each other and your children properly. So you have to choose as a couple to love God more than you even love each other, okay? That's very important. Because it's only when God is the king of each of your hearts that with one married heart, your family, your marriage will be beating as one. That's when Christ is the king of your family. That's when his social kingship has really taken over your marriage. So you've got to enthrone Christ in your home and in your own hearts. And really, it's something that's very difficult in marriages because it's, see, it's not just one person who's doing the marriage. It's both of you. It's the man and the woman. And both of you have to have that perspective. And both of you have to be struggling for that. So again, if you're discerning marriage, you've got to ask yourself, is this person I'm looking at for marriage someone who's going to give his heart or her heart first and foremost to God? God has to be first because God's the one that's going to keep that marriage together. So then we have everything else. You stay close to the sacraments, the frequent mass, the regular confession, you know, even just the prayer life, the mental prayer that, for example, Kevin Rorty talked about, won't go into all those things. But all of those things are really going to help your marriage because... When the devil detects a chink in your marriage, he's going to pry and pry and pry there until he loosens that. And that's why you need the sacraments and frequent confession by both spouses and the sacramentals in your home to make it a very Catholic home and to call down God's grace. Pray together as a family, pray together as a couple, and of course pray together individually. 
Again, the rosary, the devotions. When you ask your guardian angel to help you in these conflicts, don't be afraid to pray in public. When you go to restaurants as a family, you can really be a powerful witness. Just the other day, I took my daughters to, I think it was Culver's, and various people came up to us and commented on how wonderful it was to see us pray together as a family before the meal. And it's happened more often than one might think. That's not the only time that's happened to us. You see, this is another very concrete way, a visible way, by which our marriage and our family life strengthens others, builds up society, helps restore Christian civilization. Now, it's very important that you pray together as a couple. You have to pray together, and you have to pray for the graces that you need in your marriage. So you're praying for the marital graces that you need. You've got to make that a very conscious, intentional prayer again every day. Pray, God, give me the graces that I need to be the spouse for, to be the, the husband for my wife that she needs, or to be the wife that my husband needs. But give me the graces that I need to, to be the mom and the dad for my family, because they are there in the sacrament, but you've got to ask for them. God wants us to ask for them. He is waiting for us to ask for them. So ask for those graces. You don't get them just by being married. You, you've got to pray to God and keep asking I would say, you know, make little habits, as we said last time, when you play with your wedding ring or something you might be doing in the morning when you get out of bed, start praying for those graces. You know, every time you, uh, whatever it is, you come up with something, and that's when you, you will pray. For many people, if they don't actively pray for this grace, they're going to reach a point, could be further on down the road, 5, 10, 15 years, and you find yourself in a place that you never imagined that you'd be, where you have grown selfish, where you have grown resentful, when you have grown bitter when the love has cooled, when you don't want to love anymore. Uh, you just find your spouse annoying because this has gone unchecked. You've drifted apart. Again, those things don't happen by accident. It's because you were making the choice to love your cross every day and to beg God for the graces to love your cross, to love your spouse every day. It didn't happen by accident. It takes time. I really encourage you to read a short article that we have posted at the website or just email me and I'll get it to you. It's called after 20 years of marriage. It's written by a Catholic wife and mother of six who talks about precisely these things. I would have liked to have read all of it to you or shared more of her experience, but it's online. You can read it yourself. We're running out of time. I know that most of you are not close to 20 years of marriage right now. I'm barely getting there. But you want to read about these things now to know what you could be headed for. Far more importantly, so that you can know what steps to take now at the start of your marriage or even before marriage to avoid terrible pitfalls in the future. Remember, learn from the experience of others. Thank God for your spouse, for your marriage every single day. Thank Him for each one of your children. I mean, but really, get down on your knees at some point in time in your day and pray, thanking God for your spouse. Consciously remind yourself of how your spouse is a gift from God. You need to do that. You know, like Kevin was saying, you can journal about that, the different ways that God is working in His grace for you through your spouse. Uh, if you're barren and you don't want to be barren, recognize that God's there working. Again, you're following all His laws. You're not doing artificial and natural birth controls. If you have all girls or all boys, again, that's God's will for you, even though you may not understand it. So you want to be able to embrace those things. You have certain gaps between your children. You wanted them a certain way. They didn't come out that way. That's God's will for you. And you've got to embrace that. Um, and thank Him for all those things. Because again, as I said earlier, if you are generous, if you pay that marital debt generously, if you have not used NFP or artificial means, then with great confidence you can always say, without any guilt, it's still going to be painful. But without any guilt you can say, I am entrusting all of this to God. This is God's plan for me. 
despite the suffering. You know, and then the suffering becomes a, a way of gaining a lot of graces and a lot of merits. There's a very fitting passage I want to read to you from one of my favorite books. It's a very small and simple book, but I really think if you were to read this and appropriate the teachings in it, psh, you'd be well on the way towards being a great saint. It's called Trustful Surrender to Divine Providence. It's published by Tan. It's written by St. Claude de la Colombière, who was the spiritual director of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, to whom the Sacred Heart appeared, and also another author, Father Jean-Baptiste Saint-Jean. So this part that I will read to you starts on page 52 in the printed edition of my copy, but this section is entitled, In the Cares and Difficulties of Family Life. And again, the goal here that the saint is trying to teach us is trustful surrender to God's divine providence. So he writes, If you are the father or mother of a family, you ought to conform your will of God with, with regard to the number or sex of the children he pleases to give you. When men were animated by the spirit of faith, they regarded a large family as a gift of God and a blessing from heaven, and considered God more than themselves as the father of their children. But now that faith has weakened, and people live isolated from God, or if they think of Him at all, it is mostly to fear Him, and hardly ever to have trust in His providence, they are reduced to bearing the burden of their families alone. And as a man's resources, however ample and assured they may seem, are always limited and uncertain, even those who are most favored by fortune view with dismay an increase in their family. They regard it as a kind of disaster which fills them with apprehension, an endless source of worry to poison their existence. How different it would be if we realized God's paternal treatment of those who submit to Him with filial trust. To obtain the help of providence, it should be your aim to cooperate, as it were, with the fatherhood of God and bring up your children as He would wish them brought up, especially by showing them good example. Have the courage to lay aside all other ambition and let this be the only object of your care and desire. Then, whatever the number of your children, you can rest assured that their Heavenly Father will provide for them. He will watch over them and dispose all things for their happiness and welfare. And the more unreservedly you entrust their future into His hands, the greater will be His loving care for them. Avoid worrying, then, about anything else for your children, except whatever may contribute to bringing them up virtuously. For the rest, having entrusted them to God, try to see what His will for them is, to help them along the path in life that He has chosen for them. Never be afraid of relying too much on Him, but rather seek always to increase your trust more and more. For this is the most pleasing homage you can pay Him, and it will be the measure of the graces you will receive. So again, that's just one little passage from Trustful Surrender to Divine Providence by St. Claude de la Colombia. I encourage you to read the whole thing and try to put it into practice. So do trust God, okay? And I can't sufficiently emphasize how important it is for the couple to pray together. If a couple prays together, they are going to stay together. Um, you've got to pray together. And so you've got to build up a routine of prayer. I think that's one of the most difficult things that couples have, praying together. Perhaps it's because it's an intimate thing and you're used to doing it on your own. Perhaps it's because you're in different places in the spiritual life. Uh, you like to pray different ways. I, I think praying together is one of the greatest challenges that couples have. So you've got to figure that out. 
Uh, and the best way, I think, especially if you're not married yet, is you start from day one, you know, in the courting process. You start building up habits of prayer with each other, because then you can carry those through. Because when you have a habit of prayer, and you have developed a routine, then it's much easier to just stick to the routine, especially when things are tough. That's when it's hardest to pray. And when having an already established routine is perhaps the only thing that will keep the prayer going. And then when things get better, as they always do, because this too shall pass, it's easy to step back into the routine if by chance you unfortunately had let it slack off. But routines are key. Just think about it in the natural life. For example, uh, if spouses decide that they're going to spend time together in the evening or they'll give each other a goodbye kiss when you know, the husband leaves for work and when he comes home uh, or if they you know, share a cup of coffee together in the morning, maybe the dad's reading the paper, whatever it is. Routines are key because they help bring normalcy to our very hectic lives. They provide stability because life is always so tumultuous and changing. And they can also help you quickly identify when something is wrong and then start working on fixing it because you know, the routine wasn't followed, so that sets off little lights and bells. So yes, please, build up a routine of praying together from the time when you are courting, and then carry it through your married life. Now, if you already got a lot of years of marriage and haven't been doing any prayer, you've got to start the habits. And it's a little more difficult. It's a lot easier to tell your spouse, hey, let's go get coffee, let's go out to eat, let's go catch a movie. It, it doesn't seem very difficult. But to say, hey, let's sit down and do some prayer, there's a certain uncomfortableness about it. And so if there's routine and you get into a habit of something which you need to develop, that's very important. So a lot of the things that Kevin was saying in the earlier talk, I kept thinking, yeah, I know he's talking about the individual, but a lot of those things apply to the marriage too. It's in a different way, but you do have to spend some key and important moments praying together. And I think the routine helps a lot because otherwise what happens is that you drift away from it as uh, we tend to drift away with prayer all the time. Okay, the, la the last point, also you hear this a lot. And that's place your spouse next. So you place God first, place your spouse next. Your spouse does have to have the highest place in your life, you know, after God. She, he has to be the greatest priority above children, above your family, you know, like your parents or your brothers and sisters, above friends. A lot of people don't do that with their marriage. And that's a recipe for disaster. Make sure you speak kindly to each other because they're your highest priority. Don't do things like take advantage of begging forgiveness instead of asking for permission first. Don't talk badly about your spouse to others. I would encourage all of you that. No one talks about this, but it's so important. Honestly, just don't talk bad about your spouse to others. Just talk well about them. You have to have a very close, very Catholic spiritual friend, like a good priest, if you need to say some complaints about your spouse. It would need to be someone who is very trusted, who is spiritually mature enough that it won't make them sin in their own mind against your spouse and think negatively about them. It also has to be a person who is tight-lipped and isn't going to talk about it. And then it should be a person who's actually going to help you strengthen your marital relationship and not exacerbate the problems by, let's say, feeding into your complaints. That happens a lot of times. Believe me, I know. One negative comment made by one person leads to another comment made by the other one because you know, they want to commiserate, and then both start talking negatively about their respective spouses. And before you know it, what they've done is they've actually worked together to weaken their spousal relationships. And instead of helping a friend, 
in a spiritually beneficial and constructive way, they've torn things down. So you do need to be wise, prudent, discerning, and exclusive if you're going to pick someone to share any kind of complaints about your spouse with. I always say it's best if you take that to prayer, talk to God about it, and then yes, talk to a good, trusted priest. But it, it can't be like the gossip, it can't be like on the phone, you can't have like your five girlfriends and you're telling them all the things you don't like about your husband. That's disaster for a marriage. And it's something that really plagues marriages. So I definitely say when you're talking to others, always talk well about your spouse. Don't talk bad about them. For both men and women, talk well about your spouse. Even when you're angry with them, even when you're having problems at home, you still have to talk well about your spouse. It will do a lot of good for your marriage and prevent a lot of negative things. Uh, you know, for women, for example, it's also very important to trust your husband and to let him know that you trust him. Because again, his role, that right order from number four, is that the f- husband is the head. He has to lead. But if the wife isn't trusting him and doesn't let him lead or doesn't trust his leadership, that strikes at the very heart of what the man's role is in the family and it creates a tremendous problem. So a lot of women don't want to trust their husband with certain decisions. They have to. You've got to let, sort of let that go and trust that God is going to work through those graces. Just like the man has to know that the woman is the, the heart of the home. I have to let her be that heart of the home and make that home the way she knows how because she's getting special graces for that. So you sort of respect each other's sphere but mutually support it and talk well and don't attack those particular areas that are the proper sphere of the husband or of the wife. So keep things private that are meant to be private between just the two of you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. I think you've heard it, but it needs to be said anyway. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I mean, how wonderful if spouses make sure they don't go to bed angry at each other. Don't let that anger fester. Forgive each other readily. Make it a goal to always forgive, to always ask for forgiveness, to be the first one to do so. That can be very hard because you've got to suck up your pride. It can be humbling. But marriage is also meant to help you grow in humility. And that quote, I have it here, it's from... St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, where he says, quote, Let not the sun go down upon your anger. Give not place to the devil. Close quote. Remember, the devil's going to pry wherever he finds a chink, a crack in the marital union. Also very important, always be united before your children. You've got to be united. You've got to be one. And you've always got to tell them, if mom says that, dad says that. That's just how it is, because children will really go after a disunity and turn the parents against each other. So you have to have a completely and utterly united front before your children. You just do. It's very important for the children to know that they can't split the parents up and make them take different sides. So you always have to be united. Be united, especially with your children. Keep your discussions and your disagreements in private. Take them in your bedroom, close the door when the kids are asleep. Men, it's very important, for example, for you to teach your children to respect their mother, and to respect your wife. You cannot let your children disrespect their mother. It's very important. You see that all the time in public sometimes. A child is back-talking to their parent and the father doesn't say anything. That's crazy. The father's got to stop that and say, you don't talk that way to your mother. You obviously have respect for your wife and you need your children to have that respect. Okay, that's also very important because that authority that the man has, he's covering his wife with that when he's teaching the children to respect her. Okay, so... Marriage is meant to be unitive. It is for the good of the spouses. That is the secondary end. Uh, So they are meant to help each other. And it's for the mutual perfection of both spouses. So they should be better together than apart. Be together. You're better together. 
You should be. That's why you should be getting married. Okay? So always be together. Always be united. Yeah. I think you're getting it, right? Always be united. <laughs> Very good. We've uh, drilled that one home. The last thing I'll just kind of close with very quickly is do use secular wisdom to build your marriage also. I mean, marriage is a natural reality. So we've talked a lot more about the supernatural aspect because that's what's most often neglected. It's what no one talks about, and that was the theme of this conference. The sacramental aspect and the Catholic aspect and the cross and placing God first. But there is some natural secular wisdom out there that can help you. So I would use it because marriage is a natural reality too. And that can strengthen your marriage, again, on the human level. Don't just discount it. Now, these are things you can hear about, so I don't need to spend as much time. But I'll just mention things and and leave it to you for Homer to do this. But really do it. Because I'll tell you, this is one of the places where my own marriage has really grown. I mean, leaps and bounds. And it's not just my marriage. It has honestly been my understanding of my children and even my understanding of relationships with my friends or, you know, my family members. So one thing is know the temperaments. Okay, we actually have a book over there on the temperaments. There are four basic temperaments. Choleric, sanguine, melancholy, and phlegmatic. And they each react differently. Some react quicker, some react stronger, some react slower, some, you know, more reserved. You've got to look at those different temperaments because the problem with us is that we have a particular temperament And we just assume that everybody else has got that temperament. And so if this particular thing makes me react a certain way, well, it's going to make everybody else react that way. But it doesn't work that way. Everybody's got different temperaments. And what you think, oh, they're just doing this to, like, ignore me. They're just doing this because they don't think it's important. They're not doing this because it's not a priority for them. And if you understood their temperament, you'd realize, oh, no, they're just responding in a very natural way for them. It's not natural for me, but it is for them. And so there's a lot of mutual understanding that you can gain, as I say, certainly with spouses. If you've got a spouse, you better know your spouse's temperament. You better know your own. Know thyself and know your spouse. But that applies to a lot of relationships. It's not just spousal. Because then you'll understand, I mean, so often a spouse says something and like the other spouse takes it the wrong way. Oh, I can't believe you just said And this one, I didn't mean that at all. Like, why would you assume that? But again, it might go back to a temperamental difference, that they have different temperaments. For example, I am choleric melancholic. And my wife is sanguine choleric. Now, that makes for an interesting dynamic, to say the least. Uh, We both have quick reactions, but generally the strength of my reaction will last longer. Now, she has a lot of great ideas and initiates projects, but I have had to get past the idea that if a project is unfinished, it, it doesn't mean she doesn't care or it's not a priority for her. A lot of it goes back to the way her sanguine mind is working. It's actually taken me a while to learn this, but it's helped me a great deal to understand it. I could actually uh, tell you hours and hours of stories of how knowing the temperaments has helped me improve in various situations or understand how people are reacting. Some of them are quite humorous uh, with our kids. Uh, You might imagine that given our children who have a wide range of temperaments, we have a strong choleric, we have classic phlegmatic, we have a super intense sanguine, we also have the melancholic. So, I mean, we've got all four temperaments in our kids, and we have to parent each differently because different things are going to work better for different temperaments. I've actually heard some parents say, I treat all my children exactly the same. That's ridiculous. It's probably not true. But if it is true, or if you're trying to make it true, that's not good. It's not going to help each one of your children. Each one of the children's different. And you've got to understand that as a parent, and then help raise them and form them in the way that's going to work best for them. It takes wisdom, it takes prudence, it takes experience. It's not that easy. And we're all trying to learn and grow on that. 
So know the temperaments, understand them, talk to your spouse about temperaments. It's good fodder for when you go out on a date with your spouse, too, to talk what your, what your temperaments are and how you've reacted to different things and you're getting to know each other better building that relationship. Similarly, there's some, I think, interesting talk about like what your love language is. Again, everybody's got like different love language, and all that means is like what is making me feel loved and appreciated? So five major categories are, for example, some people really like to be affirmed verbally, words of affirmation. But another is just acts of service. I do things for you around the house, whatever it might be. You know, I sweep up here, I clean up, I go take out the garbage, different little acts of service. Uh, receiving gifts, that's another one that works for some people. Spending quality time together. And then also physical contact. Here we're not just talking about marital intimacy. Here we're talking even just about, you know, like, like a touch on the shoulder or putting your arm around someone or a back rub. Okay, so there are these different ways. And for some people, some of those things really speak love and some don't. I can sort of personally testify that to me, gift giving isn't a big thing. I don't get too into giving gifts, and I don't think too much when people give me gifts. I mean, it's a nice thing, but it doesn't really make me feel appreciated. At least not as much as some of these others. I think nearly everyone likes being the recipient of these five categories, and we use a blending of them in all our relationships, but some of them do speak more powerfully to this or that person. And of course, there's also going to be a difference when you consider how you best receive the affection of friends or family as opposed to how you expect to receive affection from a spouse. Notice the expectations are rearing up again. So now if my spouse was that way, she isn't actually, so it works for me in this case, but if my spouse was really into thinking that gift giving was important for her and I was failing in that, she'd be thinking, well, he doesn't love me because he doesn't give me gifts. And then she'd be giving me gifts because that's what she wants me to do. And I'm like, I don't really care about those gifts. And now I'm thinking my wife doesn't love me. Because again, we're talking a different sort of like language to show the love that we really do have. So you need to learn what it is that, how is it that you tell your spouse I love you? What makes her or him feel loved? And then you need to do that. It may not be your particular love language, but you've got to, again, sacrifice, go out of your comfort zone and do what is going to make her feel more loved or him feel more loved. So hopefully everybody knows the love language of their spouse. It can be different. It can be one or two. It can be more of this or more of that. You know, there's a whole spectrum amongst those. But I would say those are some of the five major ones. So these are some of the things you want to learn and be able to discuss and know about your spouse because it's going to help the marriage on the natural level. And I'm telling you, if you learn these things and start doing these, then the other things like prayer, which is now a supernatural thing, becomes easier. Okay? Because if your spouse is feeling loved because, let's say, they like acts of service, and you've done a number of acts of service, so they're feeling very much loved by you, and then you bring up the whole let's pray, it's much easier to pray at that point because of the natural connection and because grace builds on nature. Okay? Another book, The Tendencies. You know, what's your tendency? Upholder, questioner, obliger, rebel. All this has to do is why do we act when we act? Are you compelled from within or externally? For example, an upholder is a person who is compelled to act both from within and by other people. If he thinks people have expectations of him, he wants to meet them. But he also wants to meet his expectations of himself. That's like the upholder. That's what I am. But then there are others who are the obliger, and they want to oblige people. So if people make expectations on them, they want to meet those. But when they have their own expectations, they just kind of keep pushing to the side and don't really act on that. Uh, And that can reach a blowing point. Okay, so the point to all of this, I'm not going to go into the books, because you read them yourselves, they're interesting, again, they're not perfect, they're not Catholic, so you're not getting it for that, but you are getting it for natural knowledge, uh, but it can really teach you a lot about sort of why your spouse is acting when she's acting, or he is not acting when he's not acting, and you'll understand it, and then you'll realize it's not because he's upset, or he's angry, or he just wants to be selfish, it's just, this is his natural mode of acting, and then you also figure out the ways to sort of get your spouse to act. 
And this also works, by the way, with employers and employees and just friends. I mean, you've got to know sort of like what's making your employees or your friends tick so that you will motivate them in the right ways that are proper to their own tendency, their own temperament. Okay? So that's what I mean by tapping into some of this natural knowledge. There is a huge list. This is on the notes. So you can get it. But these are things that I do recommend reading. Above all, it's the papal teaching on marriage. I mentioned Leo XIII's encyclical, Pius XI's encyclical on marriage, and Pius XII's address to midwives, as well as lots of other material, including some of this non-Catholic material I just mentioned. And I gave an entire 20-plus week course on marriage on the family, which is now on CD and MP3. You can get that through the St. Vincent Ferrer Foundation. But these notes are online, so you can get them. Last but not least, I think a very important thing that needs to be said is not said enough. Number 10, make your marriage your life's work. That's really so important. If you're going to get married, make it your life's work. Many people don't think this way. I don't know, maybe they're a physicist and so they want to discover some physical thing or a new patent or a musician. They want to compose a great sonata or they're an artist. They want to, you know, whatever it is, people have got all these goals. They want to write a book. They want to travel. They want to do this. They make their life work other things. A bucket list, achieving fame or some important position, their career, all worldly things which are fading from this passing world. See, another way of thinking about this is How will I be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? That's my life's goal. Unfortunately, far too many people that the world remembers, it remembers them for worldly reasons, because of worldly achievements. It's the world. Most people who are famous and well-known, we don't necessarily know a lot about their family life, about their marriage. But if God is calling you to holiness through marriage, that's got to be your life's work. And you should say, I want to be remembered for the marriage that I lived, the family that I had. That's going to be my legacy. Because believe me, for all eternity in heaven, that legacy is the one that's going to endure a lot more than all the worldly fames which people may have accumulated here on earth. Famous generals who won battles, politicians who led countries, kings, queens, scientists, artists, whatever. Whatever fame you've got. If it didn't lead to holiness, it's not enduring unto heaven. But those who are married and make marriage their life's work and achieve sanctity through it, that is a legacy which shall be remembered. Because it will be remembered in heaven unto eternity. Obviously, your ultimate life work is getting to heaven, placing God first. But marriage has got to be like the defining thing about your life. Because in the end, it is what's going to bring you the most joy in your life, and it's what's going to matter the most in getting you to eternity. Okay? So you've got to think that way. My marriage is my life's work. It's the most important thing for me. It's what defines me. It's what's going to bring me great joy. And when I'm on my deathbed, those are the things you're going to be thinking about. It's going to be your marriage, your children, your marriage and your family. That should be your life's work. But then give it that importance in the day-to-day routine of your life. I have found something that is helpful is to have a family motto. So I kind of grew up with this. We lived in Germany for a few years. And my dad came up with a family motto. He called it Susammen im Himmel. It's German. It was together in heaven. And, you know, my mom was making pottery at the time. And I remember this big dish we had in a pretty china cabinet. And, you know, she painted on it, Susammen in Himmel. And so I'll always have that as a memory. That was our family's goal. And it still is. And we get together, you know, various holidays. And we'll still say, Susammen in Himmel. Or we'll write it on an email or say it on the phone. I mean, it's neat to have a little family motto like that. My wife and I have slightly modified ours. It's uh, Exerce debemus celum, which is English for 
let's practice for heaven. So we're practicing for heaven. I tend to think that this motto is maybe a little bit more of the traditional Catholicism, whereas my dad's motto was a little bit more influenced by the Novus Ordo, you know, together in heaven, like we're already there. And I think we have a more realistic understanding there. We're not there yet. We've got to practice right now for heaven. So practicing for heaven. So, you know, I don't know, I'll get a wood carving and have a real nice thing that says, you know, practicing for heaven or whatever other family motto you want to come up with. You put that in a prominent place in your house or tape it on your mirror where you shave, things like that, whatever it is. But put it around this model that sort of keeps reminding you, this is my life's work. This is my life's goal. Have that family motto to help sort of tie all these things together and keep you focused on your marriage. God first, spouse second. This is my cross. This is my path to heaven. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org. Immaculate Heart of Mary, Ora Pro Nobis.